Welcome to Basic Brewing Radio for Thursday, September 22nd. I'm James Spencer. Here at Basic Brewing Radio, we're all about home brewing, making beer at home. This week, we preview the Great American Beer Festival coming up in Denver, Colorado, and we spend a bit of time in the mailbag. As I predicted, the sanitation show from this past week stirred up a little controversy, although less than I expected, thank goodness. We'll talk about sanitation feedback and try to answer listener questions in the second part of the show. But first, a few weeks ago, Andy Sparks convinced me to go along with him to the annual Brewers Association Great American Beer Festival. That's coming up on September 29th through October 1st in Denver, a city dubbed the Napa Valley of Beer. Andy said we could cover it for Basic Brewing Radio, and I said, what's a Great American Beer Festival have to do with home brewing? It's commercial breweries who are showing off their beers. But when I applied for a press pass and got it, it was pretty much a done deal. So, what is the Great American Beer Festival, and what's it got to do with home brewing? Let's ask Gary Glass of the Brewers Association. Welcome, Gary. Thanks, James. And you are the the project coordinator for the Brewers Association. What what does that entail? Uh, well, I do a lot of different things here, but uh, my ma- major project uh, throughout the year is working on the National Homebrew Competition, which is the largest uh, beer competition in the world. And that's got to be quite an undertaking in itself. It certainly is. There's, there's a lot of details that go into it. Uh, we do it in uh, 10 regional sites uh, around the country and in Canada, and then uh, a final round during our homebrewers conference. Uh, a lot of volunteer coordination, um, sponsorship, and uh, just making, uh, making everything happen to get all those beers judged. And, and in your spare time, they have you working on the Great American Beer Festival, too? Uh, yes, they do. <laughs> uh, this time of year, that's, uh, that's what our company is focused on. Uh, we, we've got, uh, got a lot that goes into it, and 23 staff people, all of whom are, are somehow involved in putting on this festival. And tell me, tell me a bit about what, uh, what goes into that. I mean, this is a, give us a little bit of history and a little bit of the, the scope of, of what goes on at the Great American Beer Festival. Sure. Uh, this, is the, this will be the 24th year of the, of the Great American Beer Festival. It started uh, in Boulder, Colorado with uh, a handful of breweries, uh, and I believe something, somewhere on the order of uh, 30 beers uh, at the festival. Um, We've expanded quite a bit since then. Uh, we now have, uh, let's see, uh, 1,669 beers on the floor um, uh, from uh, 380 different breweries. And the competition portion of the, of the festival uh, will be judging 2,358 wow. uh, entries. Is this the picture, if a, a snapshot of the beer industry in the United States? Yeah, absolutely. It, it covers uh, it covers all aspects of of the brewing industry, from the the large brewers like Coors, Miller, uh, Budweiser are all heavily involved in the competition, uh, down to some of the smallest brew pubs in in the in the country are, will be at the at the festival. So a huge range of of, uh, of beers in terms of size of the breweries and in terms of uh, varieties of beer. Uh, this is. This is the way to, to taste what's going on in, in American uh, craft beer. And with, with 1,669 beers uh, on tap, uh, how does that work? 
I've never been to one of these things, so so walk me through this, uh, Gary. How, surely they don't just hand you a beer, you know, like a, a bottle of beer when you go to the booze. How does that no, work? No, no, certainly not. Uh, when you enter the enter the hall, they'll give you a, a tasting glass, and you can take that to any of the any of the booths and uh, get a one ounce sample. And the, there's an unlimited number of samples. Uh, of course, you want to take it easy because even though it's just one ounce. Uh, over over four hours, the, those ounces add up. Um, <laughs> but the 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 uh, the floor itself is arranged um, by uh, by region. So all the breweries in the South region will be all in the same place. All the breweries in the Pacific Northwest will all be in the same place. Uh, so if you're looking for a particular brewery, it's it's you'll be able to find it. We also have maps available of where exactly every brewery is on the floor. And can you get an idea of uh, uh, of how popular the the breweries are by how long the lines are and at their booths? Certainly, uh, yeah. So some of the some of the booths will definitely uh, be more popular than than the others. And uh, over the years, uh, people come back uh, and and have identified those those breweries that uh, that have some some very special beers that uh, always show up at the the beer festival. And you'll find uh, large crowds around those those booths. Strategically, when is the best time to? When are the best days, and what are the best times of day uh, to go in to, you know, to to kind of beat the crowds and, and get the best uh, uh, variety of tastings? The uh, best times would, would certainly be the the Thursday evening session and the the Saturday afternoon sessions. Uh, those are the those are the two that are the the lightest attended. Uh, the Thursday session, you'll you'll find a lot of the brewers behind the booth, um, and then uh, the the Saturday session uh, is when the award ceremony goes on. So you get to find out who who won which awards, and then you can go visit those uh, those uh, those brewery booths to try the award-winning beers. Um, and also the Saturday session, uh, members of the American Home Brewers Association or the Brewers Association get discounts on on the tickets to that connoisseur tasting. So do we, do we get to to kind of see Cinderella stories, or do we get to see undiscovered breweries uh, really come to light at this festival? Sure, definitely. Uh, every every year there there'll be there'll be some breweries that that come back year after year and win awards, and then every year there will also be be breweries that have never won awards before, or new breweries, startups that will take awards. So, um, yeah, there's always surprises. Um, and as well as you know some of the usual suspects that that come back year after year winning awards. <laughs> now, who who are the usual suspects? Who who usually make uh, good showings? Uh, well, um, Firestone Walker is one that comes to mind. They they won the the midsize brewery of the year last year. Um, they they consistently make really excellent beers. Um, uh, let's see, uh, Spetzel uh, usually usually takes some medals. Um, the, there are several out there that regularly win awards. Uh, certainly, um, Boston Beer is, uh, regularly takes medals, um, and Alaskan Brewery takes a lot of medals. So. But there, there are lots of breweries out there who, who regularly are consistently making great beer, and they, they, those ones that, that consistently make great beer are going to win awards. But there's, there's a lot more going on besides just... Uh, uh, the open beer tasting on the floor. What else is going on? Uh, sure, there's a. We're doing a um, beer and food demos where we we're pairing uh, 
professional brewers uh, with with professional chefs, and we brought in some of the some of the biggest name chefs uh, and, and the biggest name brewers uh, in the well, the chefs from the Denver area and, and brewers from all over the country who are pairing up to uh, to teach courses during the festival on the festival floor uh, about pairing food with beer and brewing or, or cooking with beer. So uh, there's that. Uh, we also have several exhibitors around the around the floor. Um, some with, uh, with with home brewing demos and uh, and other beer related type of uh, type of things. And and there's music as well, right? Yes, on the on the stage every night we'll, we'll have uh, have different acts playing uh, playing music for uh, for the festival attendees um, and a, and a wide selection of, of food available as well. I mean, that's one of the things that uh, that we like to promote at the Brewers Association is is pairing. Uh, good food with good beer. So it's it's not just about the beer. No, absolutely <laughs> not. It, uh, but beer is obviously central. It's a, it is the Great American Beer Festival. And there are also other events uh, going on, sponsored by uh, other companies and other breweries uh, offsite within the area. Mm-hmm. And I've, I, since I got the press pass, I got uh, I got invited to a couple of those, so we'll be able to take the listeners kind of behind the scenes, uh, hopefully, and, and see some of that going on. Certainly, yeah. There are, there are a lot of uh, a lot of insider uh, events that go on for the for for people in the brewing industry, as well as uh, there is a um, there is the the uh, keg ran out clubs eleventh uh, annual World Brewers Forum that goes on Thursday Thursday night. Um, after the festival, and they always have guest uh, guest speakers, and that's open to the public, and and has has very much a homebrewing focus. You made a good segue. We're <laughs> we are concentrating on uh, homebrewing on this uh, podcast. So, as homebrewers, my buddy Andy and I are going out there, and as homebrewers, what you know, show us through the the festival. Uh, or show us around the festival through homebrewers' eyes. What should we be looking at uh, in order to to help our homebrewing activities? Uh, well, what I would be, what I would suggest is is first coming up with a plan. Uh, when when you enter the the festival floor, um, there's uh, over 380 uh, beer booths, and, and like I said, 1,669. Uh, different beers to taste. Obviously, even uh, even over four sessions, there's no way that you can taste all that beer. But we're sure going to try. try. <laughs> uh, uh, my my suggestion to to homebrewers is that uh, use it as a learning experience. Uh, if there's if there's particular styles that you're interested in, focus on those styles. Look for go, go to different breweries and different regions and see how those styles vary. See what brewers are doing doing what. Um, I suggest going to to either the Thursday or the Saturday session. The Thursday Saturday session, especially the the brewers at the beginning of the session, are very very likely to be at their booth, hmm. um, which gives uh, gives you an opportunity to talk with the brewers. So if there there's a particular beer you like, you want to find out what what uh, what kind of malt they use, what kind of hops they use. That's that's the time to go and do that. Uh, it's it's really an excellent opportunity and and. It's it's the only opportunity to try all these different beers from all over the country uh, that aren't available in most places. So uh, finding the, those uh, those unique beers and and finding those brewers, uh, I think, is is what will really help you in in brewing 
better beers, being able to talk to those brewers and sample their beers. So it's a, a source of inspiration and information at the same time. Sure. Are the the brewers? I, I would assume would be pretty home brewer friendly. In fact, I would imagine that uh, most of them will have been home brewers themselves. Oh yeah, absolutely. We we would estimate well, that over ninety percent of the the brewers in the country today started out as home brewers. So, I mean that's that's their roots. They're and and they've made their lives beer. So talking to other people who who are passionate about beer is something that they enjoy. So. Uh, they're, they're definitely looking forward to to meeting the public and meeting their their consumers. So. And reading the uh, the list of uh, breweries and some of the beers that are that are going to be featured, it seems like uh, you know there are the the beers that pretty much stay within the guidelines, and then there are some beers that are pretty out there as far as uh, ingredients or or uh, pushing the envelope of. Uh, you know, going beyond, uh, you know, what the what the styles uh, entail. So there there could be some interesting stuff that, uh, you know, someone like me in Northwest Arkansas may not have access to. Oh yeah, definitely. There there are always some some very unusual beers uh, out there that uh, that are are hard to find. Um, I know one of the one of the really popular booths uh, at at JABF every year is the new Glarus. Uh, which is now only distributed in in uh, Wisconsin. Hmm. Um, they make a couple of fruit beers, uh, in, including a, a sour red Belgian style beer and a, and a uh, cherry fruit beer that are just extraordinary. And those are the kind of, those are the kinds of things. You, you, I mean, unless you live in Wisconsin or know people in Wisconsin, you can't get those beers elsewhere. So. Uh, and they're not necessarily beers that are always going to going to win medals. They don't necessarily fit into categories, but uh, yeah, certainly some unusual ones. Uh, another one that that comes to mind would be uh, uh, the Sam Adams Utopias. Uh, this beer sells for for uh, over a hundred dollars a bottle, so it's not many people get get a chance to try it. Well, they have it on the festival floor, so wow. Uh, that's a that's a pretty unique opportunity to try this beer, which is the the strongest alcohol content beer in the world, at twenty five percent. Well, I would assume the line would be long uh, at that booth. Yes, it uh, it does tend to be tend to be fairly long, but uh, but so I would suggest getting there early in the in the festival. So. Well, it, it sounds like uh, the long lines are, would be a good pacing device. Uh, for people like me who would would tend to go quickly from booth to booth with my little tasting glass and and probably by the end of the evening not get the the most you know the best experience out of the <laughs> out of the brewers festival pacing is is definitely uh an important thing it, it, it is amazing how how quickly those one ounce samples uh add up um so uh, definitely uh, take in everything that's going on at the, at the festival. Take in some of the music, uh, visit some of the food booths, and, uh, and and talk to talk to some of the the people who have exhibitors uh, uh, that are exhibitors at the at the festival uh, to to break it up because four hours of of nonstop drinking is is not exactly a, a great experience. So. <laughs> <laughs> you want to be able to remember those those wonderful beers that you tasted on the floor. So. There you go. Well, Gary, I appreciate your time. Gary Glass, Project Coordinator for the Brewers Association. Uh, we hope to see you in Denver. I will be there. My pleasure. Good talking to you, James. We appreciate Gary Glass taking time out to talk to us. 
If you would like to find out more about the Great American Beer Festival, you can go to greatamericanbeerfestival.com or go to the Brewers Association website at beertown.org. And as usual, I'll post links to those sites on our site, basicbrewingradio.com. Now, on to the mailbag. Let's start off with the less controversial letters and work our way up. Alex from Philadelphia writes in to say he travels a lot and likes to listen to the show on the road. We're glad you keep us along, Alex. He also says he's planning to brew his first batch of beer this fall and wants to start with something simple as long as he can taste the hops. I suggested he start with an ingredient kit from a homebrew supply store and that way he can concentrate on the process and not worry about trying to formulate or tweak a recipe on his first attempt. I also put in a shameless plug for my buddy Andy's kits on thehomebrewery.com. That's how I started, and I always got good results. Of course, Andy's not the only one selling good ingredient kits out there. Good luck on your first batch, Alex. I also suggested Alex listen to Craft Beer Radio since he's from Philadelphia, and the Craft Beer Radio guys are in Pittsburgh and often talk about good local beers. Alex says he recommends Stouds Brewery in Pennsylvania. That's S-T-O-U-D-T, apostrophe S. I hope I'm pronouncing that properly. And Dogfish Head in Delaware. Both of those are scheduled to be at the Great American Beer Festival, so I hope to get to sample their beers. Ryan in Milwaukee asks, What is the main purpose for steeping grain and the different purpose for all the different types of grain? In a lot of recipes, there is no grain being steeped or a lot less than I usually get with my kits. Well, Ryan's referring to the practice in making extract beers where specialty malts or grains are steeped in a bag as the water is heating, kind of making a grain tea. Well, there are three reasons to steep grain in an extract beer, color, flavor, and mouthfeel or body. Listen to our discussions with uh, Bob Hansen from August 18th and August 25th for more background on this. But when you're using a malt extract, you're essentially reconstituting a wort that the extract manufacturer has made. You can use this wort to make your beer without steeping grains, and you would be making a beer with the characteristics that the extract manufacturer has chosen, and that may be just fine. But if you want to customize your beer... You can add specialty grains that add a different color. For instance, if you use a light extract to make a darker colored beer, you'd add a bit of specialty grain with a darker color. This would also change the beer's taste. It might taste more roasty or chocolatey, for example. It would also have an impact on the body or mouthfeel of the beer. So, using specialty grains in extract beers can give you a great deal of flexibility in customizing your brews. Rick from Sacramento, California writes in to say he enjoys the show and has passed it along to his local homebrew club, the Gold Country Brewers Association, and his BJCP class. Well, thanks, Rick. He suggests we do a show on the BJCP, or Beer Judge Certification Program. I think that's an excellent idea. You can find out more about the BJCP at bjcp.org. And I'll put that on the list of future topics. Good idea. Ross from Perth, West Australia, writes in this week. He says, I'm sort of a non-traditional brewer. I only brew mid-strength, or 3.5% alcohol per volume for my health, and uh, bottled directly into 600 milliliter, and that's a little more than 20 ounces, 
used soft drink bottles. I'm absolutely happy with my brews, always made from pre-prepared brew cans. My question for the podcast is, my brews are reliably tasty. However, I have never addressed the issue of sediment settled after post-fermentation. I don't mind this too much, but it looks rather amateurish. What are my options for getting rid of this sediment? Well, Ross, if you're referring to the sediment in the bottom of your bottles, I don't know that I'd characterize it as amateurish. I believe what you're seeing is yeast, and it's a normal part of bottle conditioning. If you carbonate your beer by adding a bit of sugar at the time of bottling, often corn sugar or dry malt extract, what you're doing is giving your yeast something to eat. They'll eat that sugar and turn it into a little alcohol and the carbon dioxide that carbonates your beer. In fact, it goes through fermentation similar to what it does in the fermenter, only on a much smaller scale. When the yeast cells get done, they go dormant and settle to the bottom. Most commercial beers filter the yeast out and use forced carbonation to get their bubbles. This gives an immediately clear beer, but it means the filtered beer is essentially dead, since there isn't any yeast in suspension. Therefore, the beer starts to get stale pretty much as soon as it leaves the brewery. That's why American beers have started putting freshness dates on their cans and bottles. Bottle-conditioned beers are a different story. Since the yeast is still in the beer and alive and well, it continues to work for a time, as long as the beer is not refrigerated and kept at cellar or room temperatures. That means the character of the beer changes over time. A beer that starts off sweet and malty, for example, may become more dry and hoppy as the yeast eats more sugar and adds more alcohol and carbonation. I personally think it's a great part of the fun to see how the beer changes over time. That is, as long as I can keep my hands off of it and keep some of it around for a long time. There are many celebrated commercial beers that are bottle-conditioned and have the sediment in the bottom. In fact, some styles of wheat beer, for example, recommend that you swirl the yeast into the beer before pouring to get the flavors that that yeast imparts. Having said all that, there are some things that you can do to reduce the amount of sediment in your bottles. First of all, you can use a two-stage fermentation. In other words, after four or five days when the activity in your airlock slows down and the foam starts to fall back into the beer, you can siphon your beer into a secondary fermenter and away from the tube that comes from primary fermentation. That's yeast and and protein and hops and stuff like that that's left over from the primary fermentation process. This has the advantage of helping to clarify your beer. It also has a disadvantage in that there is an added risk of infection since you're handling your beer for an added step. But if you're careful and you sanitize properly, there's not much to worry about. And finally, time will help you clarify your beer and reduce the sediment. If you rack into secondary after initial fermentation and then keep the beer in the secondary fermenter until it falls completely clear a couple of weeks or so, then there will be less yeast to settle out in your bottles, but still enough in suspension to carbonate your beer. So, celebrate your sediment, Ross. It's the sign that you're drinking a handcrafted beer, and if you pour carefully, you can leave most of it behind in the bottle anyway. With the next letter, we start getting into questions having to do with sanitation. As we said before, sanitation is sometimes a controversial topic because it seems everyone has a different way of doing things. 
Chad from Hayes, Kansas, is on his fifth batch, and he's been brewing since March. He says, in response to your sanitation show, I've been using One Step Agent to clean my materials. I'm very glad you pointed out that it's not really a sanitizer. I will probably move on to something better in my next batch. So far, it hasn't let me down, though. If One Step is a cleanser, how is it supposed to be used? Do you use it in conjunction with a sanitizer? Well, first of all, Chad, half of me wants to say if One Step is working for you, then use it. But the other half says, if it's sold as a cleanser and not a sanitizer, then you probably need something stronger for sanitizing. As I understand it, cleansers and sanitizers work together. The cleansers get the gunk off your gear, like all the crud left over from fermentation, and the sanitizer kills any wild yeasts, bacteria, or other microscopic critters that threaten to ruin your beer. So, if you like the way One Step cleans your equipment, you might want to keep using it for that purpose and start using something like Iotaphor or Starsan to sanitize. Now, one note, I still have no personal experience with One Step or Starsan, but I do hear good things. Now, we get into the tricky part. Fred from Apex, North Carolina writes in and says, It makes no sense to sanitize something only to rinse it with tap water. And I can hear, the, I can hear those heads nodding out there in agreement with Fred. How is this any different than simply rinsing a piece of equipment with water that has just been cleaned? Now, if you'll remember from last time, Steve and I talked about no-rinse solutions like Iotaphor and Starsan, where you soak your gear in them and then let them air dry without rinsing. And we talked about bleach solutions, where you soak for 30 minutes or so and rinse afterwards to get rid of the taste and smell of bleach. Well, Fred is skeptical about rinsing with tap water because he suspects there may be organisms in the water that would infect the beer if they have the chance. And if you rinse with tap water, you're just undoing what you've done with bleach. And I'm paraphrasing here. Fred and I had a, had a really good, good-natured discussion back and forth through email about this, and I appreciate Fred taking so much time um, to express his opinion. And Fred and I, we, we finished on good terms, so it's, it's so easy to uh, develop misunderstandings when, when we have uh, discussions like this about uh, these different topics. Sam from Urbana, Illinois, also comes into the discussion by saying, John Palmer, in his book, How to Brew, advises against rinsing with tap water, saying you never know what kinds of microorganisms are in the tap water. Well, I can definitely see where that argument comes from, and I'm not saying that I disagree with it uh, completely. I use iotaphor in the vast majority of my sanitizing, partly because of convenience and partly because I think it's a better way not to have to rinse afterwards. However, I do use bleach occasionally, and when I do, I just rinse with hot water from the tap. So, for a look on the other side of the fence, you remember Bob and Pam from St. Louis who wrote that they've been brewing for a little over a year and have brewed more than 30 successful batches. By the way, that's a lot of brewing, Bob and Pam. Uh, they soak their equipment for 30 to 60 minutes in one teaspoon of bleach to five gallons of water, and right before use, they rinse with hot tap water. They use a stronger solution of one tablespoon of bleach per five gallons of water for cleaning excessively dirty items. Also, Brian from Inglewood, Colorado, he says it's the land of homebrewers, uh, writes in to say that he knows Casey from Siloam Springs, 
And, you know, who doesn't, right? Casey gets as much airtime on the show as I do. Well, anyway, I, I tease Casey. Uh, Brian says he's looking at uh, going from bleach to iodophore because he says he's not big into the extra rinsing. But it's not because he thinks it's a bad practice. Brian says he sanitizes with bleach and uses the sprayer on his sink to rinse with tap water. He says he's been using bleach since he started brewing just over a year ago and is pleased with the results. Now, I did a search out there on the web, and as you might expect, I got a lot of varying advice. Some sites say when you sanitize with bleach, it's good to rinse with tap water. Some say you need to boil the water used for rinsing. And some say you should rinse with boiling water, which sounds mighty dangerous to me. And, of course, some sites say just don't use bleach at all. Now, I personally haven't seen any scientifically or satisfactorily scientific evidence on one side or another. And in the face of all sorts of confusing accounts, the best I can say is that you have to go with your gut. If you don't trust your tap water, I completely understand. Either use a no-rinse sanitizer or boil the water that you use to rinse your equipment to make sure it's 100% safe. You have to go with a method that makes you comfortable. It's your beer. You're the boss. You, you have to go with the thing where you feel that you're doing the best for your beer. Now, you can take the experience of people like Bob and Pam and Brian into account, along with the experience of Steve and me, and consider that using bleach is a viable alternative. Are we just lucky? I don't know. If Bob and Pam are just lucky and having more than 30 successful batches in less than two years, then I want to go with them to Vegas the next time they go. But seriously, I don't want to turn this podcast into the bleach debate show. But I do want to share information in a way that helps you make good decisions and helps us all make better beer. If I hear from brewers who are using a method successfully, I'll pass it on. I'll let you know if I've had experience with it or not, and you can make the decision. How's that for standing on the fence? It sounds like I'm running for political office here. Well, that's a lot of me talking, and uh, I appreciate everybody writing in with questions and comments. Now, I want to hear from you. If you have brewing questions, show suggestions, or just want to say hey, write to james at basicbrewing.com or fill out the contact form on basicbrewing.com. And don't forget to tell us where you're from. And while you're on our site, you can check out our DVD, Basic Brewing Introduction to Extract Home Brewing. You can see a listing of the fine folks across the country who sell our DVD. And if there isn't a vendor in your area, you can order it online. Well, next week, we have another great show. We talk to Dr. Scott Herness, an expert in taste, to see how the sense of taste works and how to get the most out of it. And we might dispel some tasty myths along the way, too. Well, that's all until next week. Until then, thanks for listening. I'm James Spencer, production help for Basic Brewing Radio, and our website is provided by Kelly Dotson. Basic Brewing Radio is a production of Active Voicing. We'll talk to you next time. So long.